Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by a comic shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination, and with the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geek programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom. From comics and video games to science and technology, if it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap. Hey, I'm Brandon. And with us are two special guests, the musical duo Palette Swap Ninja. Hi, I'm Dan Amrick. I'm the first half of Palette Swap Ninja. Hi, I'm Jude Kelly, and I'm the other guy in Palette Swap Ninja. <laughs> in this episode, we're going to be discussing a listener-requested topic, failed video game consoles, and we're going to be talking to Palette Swap Ninja about their latest project. This past month, they made a huge splash, when just prior to May 4th, they released an album that both parodied the entirety of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and chronicled the events of our beloved original 1977 Star Wars. The result, it's stunning, and the best thing to do to help you understand is to play some of it. So here's the title track, Princess Leia's Stolen Death Star Plans.
And it goes on. From there, instead of a little help from my friends, we hear Vader sing about Leia getting illicit help from her friends. It's not just a collection of Star Wars parodies. It's a full narrative sequence from the title crawl to the Death Star's explosion. Almost one million views in two weeks. So you know it's good. good. I mean, if that's not a seal of quality, I don't I mean, know what yeah, is. I mean, yeah, that's it's the only seal I know. <laughs> um, so we are going to be talking about that. Uh, but first, you might be wondering, what in the rim does this have to do with failed video game consoles? Which is a completely reasonable question. Jude, I hear, restores arcade machines in his spare time and is a research scientist. Dan, he's got a long history as a video game journalist and working in and around companies like Ubisoft and Activision. Hold on a second. You said video game journalist. That makes it sound like I know what I'm doing <laughs> or did anything important for 15 years. <laughs> I did write a book about it as well, but for 15 years, I was a game reviewer and editor at a number of different magazines. Certain gamers of a certain age might remember me as the cartoon character Dan Electro from GamePro magazine. So I have seen my share of failed consoles, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> now, I was an avid GamePro reader back in the day, and I was trying to figure out where exactly I lapsed, and I think I might have been just before you got on there, because I was like, what, 97, according to Wikipedia? I joined in September 97. Symphony of the Night was my the first issue that I was involved in. Oh, man. So you never wrote for Nintendo Power, I'm assuming. <laughs> I did You're not, not an old but I man. did work <laughs> in the same office where Nintendo Power was, and I would talk to those guys, but we weren't allowed in because Nintendo had very strict rules about locking doors and not sharing information with the PlayStation and Xbox and PC <laughs> magazines that also were being written and created in the same offices. Wow, so that's, go figure. that's extreme. Yeah, when it, when it changed hands over to Future US, uh, Future already had official PlayStation magazine. Uh, I was on official Xbox magazine. And uh, Nintendo Power was under the same corporate umbrella, but was actually in a building across the street because they were that extreme about uh, security. And then, you know, things, I don't know if you noticed, but video game magazines didn't turn out so well <laughs> in the long run. And so when they had to close that other office, they're like, look, we can't afford to have them over there. They had to go and, and ask, can we put these guys in their own locking office that no one else will have access to? And Nintendo <laughs> sort of begrudgingly agreed. But that's when I found out, they're like, hey, Dan, guess what? The official Xbox magazine office is now the Nintendo Power Office. Get the hell out of the... So that was it. We, we actually evicted OXM to make room for Nintendo Power. That's Whoa. a true story. You got off the sinking ship of physical print magazines and moved over to community management for game companies, actually, right? Yes, that was... Uh, I think the official term is called selling out, actually. Oh, uh, I think it's called a, evolving. Yeah, I mean... A very wise man, David St. Hubbins from Spinal Tap, said the time to sell out is when you have found a buyer. And that was pretty much exactly what happened. Was Activision was looking for their version of Major Nelson, and they reached out to me and said, is this something you'd like to talk about? And I'm like, are you kidding? Yeah, that would be great. And so, yeah, I worked at Activision for four years. Uh, let me tell you about Call of Duty. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> this is going to be a whole other episode. I know episode. more about Let's Call of it. Duty than I ever thought I would know, but uh, I was there for the birth of Skylanders, so that was actually really fun. <laughs> How would you, uh, Call of Duty, one of your favorite games? Or? Uh, I'm going to say I'm a really big Destiny fan, uh, but you know, I sort of played Call of Duty for work. And uh, when Destiny came out, that was just like, ah, oh, finally. But of course, I had left the company by that point. So I was there for, you know, like Deadpool. That was fun. I was there for a couple of other key things. I was not there for Interstate 76, which is my favorite Activision game of all time. You know, my favorite oh. thing I think you've done that I've learned about you in the past 24 hours is... <laughs> Are you running a credit check your on me, Brandon? Your blog from 12 years ago about waiting in line to get an Xbox 360. 
how it shows me the fears I've always held about how everything could possibly go wrong. That was a horrific night in all respects, and it almost ended with me getting run over just so that I could get the special Xbox You got balls, my friend. I mean, you had a happy ending. Someone was taking your premium 360 at the end of waiting, what, 20 hours or something, 18 hours. I I would have just been like, well, I got screwed and walked away crying. But you stood in front of a car that was about to run you down. But I was crying, for what it's worth. (laughs) I love the graphic that your friend made that was basically like a redo of the Tiananmen Square that that showed, like, Dan standing in front of a tank. (laughs) Holding an Xbox, yeah. There's one part where you're you're doing a lot of research to figure out who's getting what systems and how many and if they were lying. Sure. And you went to Target and you're like, you told them you're from Xbox Magazine. And was that true? Did you work for Xbox Magazine at the time? Absolutely, yeah. No, I was was, uh, an editor. you made that up. That's amazing. (laughs) No, no. No, I was I was an editor at official Xbox magazine for about three years. So that's why it was absolutely critical that I get the fancy Xbox and I get it day one. My job kind of depended on it. Yeah, so it was it. not an option to let some other jackhole run off with my, my precious Xbox 360 that I had slept on the on the sidewalk barely. Yeah, if I have to, to wait in get, line so. more than an hour at this point, I'm just I don't <laughs> I can't. I won't. Finally got my switch after three months. I didn't wait in line for one. I'm not doing it anymore either. That incident cured me. <laughs> well, Jude, you're a research scientist of what? Of science, obviously. So lately I'm doing a lot of work on uh, trace detection, like detecting very, very small amounts of chemicals, things like that. You know, a, a, lot, of the, a lot of that sort of thing, um, you know, security-related things, um, so trace amounts of explosives, things, things of that nature. A lot of what Jude has worked on in the past, he is not at liberty to discuss. Oh, no, I'm looking, That's why I'm looking up his past Jude right now. Jude is the most dangerous man on this podcast right now. I'm, <laughs> I am I'm hacking the FBI database, finding everything I could possibly know about Jude right now. <laughs> <laughs> so you also, you fix up old, what, arcade machines? How, how is that? Yeah, yeah. So I kind of got into that hobby quite a long time ago. Um, You know, it always starts with like one or two games that you're looking for. It's like, I must have a Return of the Jedi arcade machine. It's a reasonable Uh, one. Yeah, I remember when I was like 10 years old making that, you know, solemn vow, you know, you know, standing in front of this machine that seemed unobtainable at the time. And then fast forward and there it is for 300 bucks on eBay. And I'm like, what the hell? So yeah, yeah, I, I collect old arcade games and fix them up. Actually, some of the games that I have in my collection came from when Dan was at Game pro he gave me a call That's one true. afternoon and he's like dude get your truck over here they're giving the games away in the <laughs> lobby and i was like oh man i'll be right there game pro was moving offices and as such they had to get rid of some of the arcade machines every time they moved and we moved fairly often at game pro so the first time we moved i got an nba jam machine that i was able to take home then the second time we moved what the hell did i get jude was that the tetris machine yeah but it was a, started as a pit fighter yeah i think there was a pit fighter i really wish i'd taken a picture yeah of my horribly overloaded pickup truck. I had a little Ford Ranger. Yeah. We had a Gauntlet, which is a very large four-player Atari cab. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we had a Pit Fighter cab, Jeez. which is one of the largest cabs that Atari ever made. And I think there was also Midway's The Grid in there. Yes. It was a non-functioning grid that you said, this will make a good MAME machine because it had a trackball. It had a, a pistol grip joystick. It had a number pad for you know typing in your, your code so that you could resume your game and stuff like that. But it wasn't working right. So it was like, how about a free monitor? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, three of the biggest games that we could have possibly loaded into a Ford Ranger yeah, pickup. Yeah, and then the whole back was, the whole seat behind the whole thing was like loaded with like control panels and power supplies. And, and then there were three of us crammed across the front. I, I'm surprised we made it across the bridge. I turned the, the Pit Fighter into a Tetris. And then when I left the Bay Area, I had to sell it. I sold it back to the guy that sold it to me as a Pit Fighter. And he said, thanks for the upgrade. And he flipped it in two days. <laughs> 
my goal is to have a car big enough to just have arcade machines in the back of my car, like fully, like fully functional. But get in, get in my van and play these arcade machines, everybody. Yeah, get like it's a free. Dodge Sprint, and they can stand up and play them in that. Hey, maybe you could put a candy machine in there and give I that could. away for free in your van. And maybe too. ice cream and cocaine. It'll be amazing. <laughs> All right, <laughs> let's let's get to the listener requested topic. Viral Demon and Temsu wanted us to talk about failed video game consoles. So this is a nerdy show microsode here. That's where we talk about what you want us to talk about for 15 minutes or more but because these two combine their forces it is a 30 minute discussion viral demon originally pitched the topic and uh, temsu seconded it temsu said this he said engage may top the list but i also think failed doesn't have to equal bad yeah i was gonna say it's Uh. it's pretty vague because when you say a console failed do you mean financially are consoles a failure because they no longer are in existence or just because they've let me down personally or emotionally (laughs) like 90 percent of consoles have let me down (laughs) i consider them all failures any console that starts with the letter s and ends with ega pretty much has failed me so harsh i'm saying this as a bit of a sega fanboy well like jude i grew up in the era of atari so when you told us this was the topic when you when you brought this up, I was like Fairchild Channel F, you know, <laughs> Bali Astrocade, like crap that was literally before you guys were born. Um, I did have a Texas Instrument. Just, I also had a TI ninety nine four A, but you know that was that was the home computer. That was the idea was to uh, to I can do my homework better on this if we get a good computer, Dad. You know, and my dad was a computer programmer, so he's like, hmm, yes, all right, that makes sense. And then of course. You know, I tried to learn how to program games on it, too, and that that turned into just learning how to get the high score. That was about it. Uh, the trick with failed video game consoles is, I mean, there are so many from the early era. There were enough that it bankrupted the entire video game economy. It destroyed the industry. So <laughs> so one that I think is, is, a, is a major turd, definitely worth discussing, is the Atari 7800. Oh. And the Atari 7800, you got to realize, it's sort of like Atari's, like, last gasp. I mean... I'm not even sure if they were even Atari anymore at that point. Yeah, they were. But now get this. They created the Atari 7800 and went up against the NES from Nintendo. <laughs> like that was their head-to-head competition with the NES. And the biggest selling point of the 7800 is that it'll play all those 2600 cartridges that you love. And if you actually got the actual new 7800 cartridges and plug them in, they really weren't that much better than <laughs> the Atari 2600 cartridges. I remember picking one up at a flea market and being like, all right, let's see what Atari was putting out right when Nintendo was getting big and thinking to myself, is this an Atari 2600 or 7800 cartridge that I just put in here? No, it's 7800. And man, is it bad? Yeah, I've never are, played one. I have, I have a like... couple of them. Dan, do you want me to send you one? I have two. Sure. Yes. <laughs> all right, okay. I'll send you one. They're actually it's good side for playing 2600 cartridges. <laughs> And some of the arcade ports are not bad. Like, you know, if you want to play Dig Dug on it or Atari ports, but they were they totally missed the boat. People did not want to relive the early 80s arcade stuff at that point. They wanted to play Super Mario Brothers. They wanted to play Legend of Zelda. Yeah, this was 86 was when this came out. That's God, what a terrible fucking idea. They tried something. <laughs> they, were, they knew they were going down. They made one last desperate attempt. <laughs> Kudos to them. And I know that they did come out with the Jaguar later, so it, it probably didn't totally bankrupt them. Yeah, well, it kind of did because the Atari that brought out the Jaguar was a very different company. Okay, uh, so that was the, and- re- the beginning of the rebrand branded Atari. Yeah, and let's not forget the Atari Lynx in the middle of there too, a great oh, yes. 16-bit handheld that was a failure commercially 
but technologically was actually really really good so this goes back to your you know your, mm. your point before of what counts as a a failed console yeah um, one of our one of our nerdy show uh, hosts um has a atari Lynx. he's had it since he was a kid and it still works and it's still great it's a handheld right i mean yeah. relatively speaking yes. it's got the weirdest cartridges you've ever seen they're like sleeves of plastic with some memory prongs on them oh wow yeah i'm looking at that <laughs> cool. yeah they're they're weird they were large cartridges they're about the size of a Game Gear cartridge, I suppose, but yeah, they they had like a curved end so that they could go into the curved door that was at the end of the curved ergonomic handle for the system. Yeah, it was a weird thing. But those bad boys cost one hundred and eighty dollars in nineteen ninety six. Super Nintendo games cost eighty dollars. So oh I mean, whoa, the Lynx you... came out in eighty nine. Well, actually, that's actually earlier than I thought it was. I thought it was a, a real mid-90s last gasp, but apparently that was the last gasp of their last gasp. Yeah. <laughs> so I have another one I'd like to throw into the mix. What do you guys think about the Nintendo Virtual Boy? I mean, that's near the top of failed systems. <laughs> it is, I, I always wanted one. It's it just, the first thing I think of. It was a lot of fun. I never played it long enough to get the purported headaches from it. But, I mean, it was too little too late. There was There's not enough going on there. The red was kind of obnoxious. Everyone yeah. wanted full color at that it wasn't point. A expensive too kind of felt like a vectrex like it, it kind of felt like the sequel to the vectrex i was working in new york city uh on a small video game magazine that nobody's ever heard of called flux virtual boy came out this is 1995 right so sony is is getting ready to launch the playstation the original playstation sega is like nobody can touch us we've got this amazing saturn and we've got all this money from the 32x <laughs> which hopefully we can get back into talking about at some point because that's my pick for the the worst <laughs> console that i ever bought and then tried to defend as no i this is going to be great. Um, I was like, well, they had that great Star Wars game. Exactly. Exactly. That's enough. That's all you need. That's all you need. That's all you need to be a successful console. Virtu- a good Star Wars game. And virtual racing is finally good the way that it's supposed to be. Um, but the Virtual Boy, Nintendo pitched us on that uh, at the magazine. And I had just moved into my first apartment. And my parents uh, came up to visit us one weekend. And the Virtual Boy on its little, you know, tripod on its little platform is sitting on my table. And uh, my mom says, oh, what's that? Now, my mom is one of those moms that was the classic, you'll ruin your eyes, you're sitting too close, why don't you go outside? She knew that I was into video games, and I called her bluff by turning video games into my career at that point, but you know, she never really wanted to play. My dad would play video pinball, and that was about it, but my mom wasn't into playing video games. So the idea that my mom would see this thing and go, whatever that is, I want to interact with it, I was like, Oh my god, that's great. So I fired it up, I let her play Mario Tennis, and she's having a blast. And I'm thinking, everybody I know thinks this is a piece of crap, but my mom loves it. So I went back into work on Monday, and uh, Jeff Kitts uh, was the editor of Flux, and I said, uh, he goes, what'd you do this weekend? I'm like, ah, my parents came up to see the apartment. Uh, My mom played Virtual Boy, too. She liked it. He goes, "Ah, maybe we should have her review it. And then we looked at each other, and he's like, do you think she would do it? And I'm like, yeah, I think she would do it. So I went and I, I took the train back to New Jersey to with my Virtual Boy, made my mom play every single game that I had for Virtual Boy, rolled tape while she was playing, and just transcribed the interviews. And so I got her saying stuff like, oh, I like it when Mario moves his little tushy when he's waiting for the... <laughs> and then I got 
gotten her to play like baseball, and she's like, "Remember when we used to go to the baseball games, Dan? That was fun." I'm like, "Yeah, mom, I remember." And all of this is in the thing. So we called the article "Virtual Mom" because there was nothing else to call it, and it was the one time in my journalistic career that we hit on all cylinders. My mom thought she was a star because she was in the magazine, right? So she asks me, "Can you send me a dozen magazines? The girls <laughs> at work want to see them." We get a call from Nintendo PR who says, "Thank you for finally putting it in front of somebody who was." unbiased. They didn't know what a 32-bit experience was supposed to be. They just wanted to have fun. And everybody is thinking 32 bits equals PlayStation and 32 bits equals Saturn. But ours is a 32-bit system too. It just has four colors of red. So thank you for giving it a fair shot. (laughs) And I'm like, sure, no problem. And meanwhile, our readers are like, oh my god, if Dan's mom likes it, that thing must be garbage. Never mind. I'm not touching it. (laughs) So we got like credibility with the readers. Nintendo thanked us. And my mom was like, hold all my calls so uh, virtual boy i still have my virtual boy out out in the garage i had to go through a lot of my older systems and and cartridges as i've been moving around and going to different places but i i saved the virtual boy and i still have maybe 10 games or something jude if i had a second one of that i would send it to you but yeah absolutely a failure but a very special failure in my personal life it's on my my console bucket list of of things to acquire because there's some games on it that I I genuinely really loved and that were hella fun. I mean that Wario game was wonderful, and the closest yep. I've ever gotten to like playing it again was that brief moment where there was like a WarioWare minigame adaptation of it. I want that again. I want what what only that stupid hardware can give me. And also, Dan, <laughs> kudos because that sounds like one of the great moments in video game journalism history. That that article That's, right yeah. there. It's rare that you make absolutely everybody happy with something that you write about. But that was three or three or four page article, and I even got pictures of my mom like wiping her eyes because her eyes hurt and everything. It was fantastic. Does this exist? Can we find this article today somewhere? Oh, um, it's possible that like Frank Cifaldi has a copy, or Kevin Gifford, one of the guys that actually collects video game magazines. I don't. Yeah, I'm hitting eBay right now. <laughs> uh, I think I saved one of each issue of Flux, but I don't think that there's PDFs on the interwebs at the moment. It's it's pretty obscure. Well, okay, if Virtual Boy is is your success so what's what's your actual fail of yeah 32x i remember so as there was nintendo power there was a magazine called sega visions and it was exactly the same thing it was a, a paid project that Sega contacted IDG, the people that made GamePro, to do this this custom publishing magazine. That's what it was called. It was it was basically advertorial, but you know they're like, well, we want a Nintendo Power too, and IDG said we can make that for you. So you know, not realizing that that's how it worked, I was just in college and I had my Genesis and I was happy and I was like, what 32x, a, a thing that I can plug into my Genesis to make my Genesis supercharged? What more could I possibly want? That and it works with my Sega CD. Oh, that's even better! And, and mind you, Sega CD saved me in a blizzard. I went all the way through and played the original Night Trap with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and it kept us sane while we were snowed in in the Northeast uh, for two and a half days. Again, Sega was very important to me. Uh, there were but some th- good games on the Sega CD, I must add. There were, but that cannot be said of 32X. <laughs> uh, it was $150. It plugged in with its own wall wart. So now you've got the Genesis wall wart, the Sega CD wall wart, and then a 32X power adapter wall wart. So it was basically its own power strip, <laughs> and you had to connect wires to the 32X so that it would output its video into the Genesis so that it could push out 
or the other way around, <laughs> I'm not sure. Basically, it made it difficult, sucked more power. There were maybe two good games. Star Wars was one, Star Wars Arcade, and uh, Virtual Racing, which came out from Time Warner. Sega didn't even do it themselves. They they <laughs> licensed it out to Time Warner to do the version of Virtual Racing that, that turned out to be quite good. Then a whole bunch of games that nobody remembers. A couple of Sega CD games that were higher resolution because of 32X. They would use the, the better video chip in 32X to get like Fahrenheit was one of the games. I think there was a 32X version of Night Trap, Deluxe Edition or something like that. <laughs> Shout you out know. to Screaming Villains who are bringing Night Trap back in a fully HD remastered version sometime. Uh... Thank God. I am on board <laughs> for that. I am absolutely it's on time. board for that. Uh, so yeah, the 32X, and you know, again, I paid my own money for that. I was like, this is going to be the greatest thing. And of course, I didn't know that Saturn was around the corner and stuff like that. So I was like, yeah, 32X is going to save me money in the long run. And then I'm just like, oh... And then we wound up using the Sega CD as a karaoke machine. And my wife is like, do we have to keep this the 32X like connected? It doesn't actually do anything for the karaoke discs. And I'm like, but if I take it out, then I'm going to lose parts. And there were little metal teeth that you had to install inside the cartridge port so that it would make a snug fit. Oh, Jesus. I mean, it was a, it was a hell of a kludge. It was terrible. And then, of course, uh, 95 was the first year the E3 was there. That was my first trade show, and I'm lucky enough to have gone to every E3 in the history of man. And I was there at the Sega press conference when they announced Sega Saturn is available today. And I was like, <gasps> like, you know, totally cheering from the press box. I was like, oh my god, it's going to be the greatest thing! And then I'm like, oh no, what happens to my 32X? <laughs> uh, the PR people at Sega were like, don't worry, your 32X is going to be fine. We're going to keep supporting that for a good long time. So, I, it's my personal dud, because it it burned me the most, I think, was the 32X. I have a question. How is Knuckles Chaotix? Because I've wanted to play that thing forever. <laughs> it, they never ported it to any of the goddamn Sonic collections, at least not when I was buying them during the Xbox generation. I assume it's, no, a, it's a stinker, but... It was really awkward. I mean, it was like magic. Keep in mind that Knuckles Chaotix is this cartridge where you plug it into your 32X, and then you plug another Sonic cartridge into that, and it inserts Knuckles and bonus stuff into the games you've already played. So there was, there was a certain amount of magic to that. Like, what? I just got more value out of these games that I thought I had played. And now, you know, they're completely different. Was that the but first yeah, DLC, I... you think? <laughs> it may have been, actually. It sort of broke a lot of the levels. You know, like, Knuckles can climb walls using his spiked fists. And I'm like, so I can just climb this loop? I don't have to be moving fast at all. I can just, okay. It's weird, but it's not necessarily enjoyable. <laughs> well, Brandon, you threw some, some serious shade It's at really Sega. hard because every time, I, I don't know what system I hate the worst. It's probably a Sega-related one. The only Sega system I actually owned, probably not a console, but it's a Sega Game Gear, and you needed like eight batteries, mm -hmm. and then an hour later, you need eight more batteries. The problem was, every time Sega came out with a new system, like a friend would get it, and I'd play it, and I'd get really bored of it and go what's this stupid hedgehog i don't care and then a better system would come out a couple months later from like nintendo or sony and so i would never jumped on the sony bandwagon you mean the sega bandwagon sorry sega band i definitely jumped on the sony bandwagon <laughs> um did not jump on this the sega bandwagon but if we're talking about consoles i actually bought and got use out of the wii u fucking hate it mm. done i bought it specifically for zelda 
and then they never made it until the <laughs> new system came out. They pushed it back. I, I used the Wii U for like maybe what middle-aged uh, mothers and fathers used it for was that stupid Wii Fit and then got bored of that and never touched it again. Like I barely used it. I played Call of Duty Black Ops 2 online on the Wii U. It worked Because on that was that? my job. There was no DLC for it. Uh, they never released any, any maps and stuff. But I would get, <laughs> when I was at Activision, I was sort of the uh, social media representative sort of, uh, I'm your friend inside Activision. So naturally, I got a lot of abuse, and that was some of the worst abuse, was the Wii U people just really didn't understand why the entire world was not focused on the thing that they got for their birthday. Uh, you know, how come Xbox gets Call of Duty maps early? Well, because there's this deal in place. Yeah, well, how come you're not doing that with Nintendo? They it's a Nintendo deal. Wii. Like, come on. They were never able to to sort of come to terms with the fact that in that generation and for that franchise, Nintendo, while being a leader in so many other things, was simply not the leading platform for Call of Duty. <laughs> or uh, most things that were third-party related. And they would, they would scream and yell at me and say, hey, you gotta, you know, uh, I would do like a rotation. Every week I would play with a community on a different platform. You know, tons of people show up for PC. Tons of people show up for Xbox 360. Tons of people show for PlayStation 3. And they're angry, but they, they show up. <laughs> uh, and then Nintendo, these people would say, you always play on all these other platforms. You never play with us. You should play with... So I'm like, okay, here, advance warning. It's your turn in the rotation. We're going to play Black Ops. We're going to play now. And literally nobody would show up. Like I would be sitting there in a... <laughs> A lobby waiting to go nobody would show up because you didn't like, have wow. everyone's friend code obviously you could you had to invite them via like a 16 digit no friend no code. even that i was like okay you want to play great I'll, I'll look for you on friday night we'll do it let's go and nope nothing so yeah i wound up selling that wii u back to activision because i had a special gamer tag i had a special name the brand of the blog that i was doing you know uh i was one of swords when i was at activision since nintendo is so nice and doesn't let you remove profile information from any hardware when i left Activision kept the name One of Swords. That was always part of the deal, so I'm not upset. But I'm like, what am I going to do with this Wii U? If I take this, then they can't use the One of Swords name on the Nintendo network. Uh, so I wound up giving it back to them and then just putting in like the receipt, the reimbursement. Uh, because that was another one where I had to buy it for my job right away. And I wound up having to buy a $600 bundle, which ironically came with Black Ops 2. <laughs> yep, that's, that's you missed the Wii U, Dan? Not at all. Not in, not, <laughs> the only thing that I miss is that I bought Earthbound for it and then i couldn't play earthbound i still have an original snes boxed copy of the large box earthbound complete that i got as a review unit back when it came out new wow and a friend of mine actually convinced me to buy one of the little plexiglass cases for it yeah, but now nice. i'm like well if i can get a new 3ds and just buy it on virtual console i'll do it that way i'll play it on my commute you know i want i want to finish that game finally so i'll start over for like the 15th time i guess <laughs> it's a really good game what i think happened and this is weird is that Sega was making these really cool out of left field systems. Like you have the Dreamcast where you could plug a stupid Tamagotchi and a, like a mini screen in the controller. And you had the Sega Saturn and the 32X. And they're coming up with these really weird imics that I feel all were, while they were fun and experimental, failed horribly. And then as soon as they stopped making consoles, Nintendo's like, you know what we haven't done enough of? That thing Sega used to do where they make weird gimmicks that are fun for like a month and then and then fail horribly. <laughs> and then they started making like the Wii and the Wii. And it's just, I don't know why they're mimicking Sega, but all of their well, systems, I don't know how I feel about the Switch yet, Cap. I love it because it's a Zelda machine, and I love Zelda. Right. After Zelda, I don't it's know. It's a gateway drug. Well, will it fail for me? Super Bomberman R. <laughs> well, I have I have some very dissenting opinions about all that. <laughs> <laughs> 
the Wii U is like the epicenter of my living room in a lot of respects because it is the best machine for, I feel, YouTubing, uh, internet stuff. I use it all the time. Whenever I want to show somebody something online in a, the theater setting of the living room, I go immediately to the Wii U. It's the fastest to start up. It gets me there quicker. It's just because you don't have a PS4 Pro. It's fine. Well, I don't. So maybe that <laughs> is a factor. But the first party games that came out for it were great. And if you don't mind playing high quality Nintendo games with the exception of Star Fox, you know. Or Metroid. I feel I got my money's worth. If they made a new Star Fox and Metroid that were actually written and designed well, I would be all about that. I'd buy three Switches specifically for each of those games. But I'm going to say Sega Game Gear then. My number one top hated, not really console, but sort of a console. But it's not a failure of a console because people love their Game Gears still. I mean, technically a Vita is definitely a failure and I own one. And you love it. Yeah, because they give me free games. You can play retro games and PS1 games and that's what I'm all about. But it's technically financially a flop and they don't really support I have one right here. No one else I know has it. You are the first person I know now that has one. Thank you. (laughs) I have one and and also, yeah, I'm I'm the same way where the... uh, the PlayStation Plus uh, subscription oh, yeah. really has helped me see games that I uh, I I would have never probably played, tried, or even heard of. Counter Spy, that was fun. And Sh- uh, Shovel Knight, I never looked at it until it was free on like my PlayStation Plus one day, and it was amazing. Kudos to you, Vita, but you're a failure. Well, <laughs> you're right. Temsu off the top mentioned Engage. Which I feel we should probably discuss a little bit. I uh, man, it's if you're not familiar with Engage, I don't blame you. It was a really, it was a flash in the pan. If you were there, I was there. <laughs> you remember the Engage? Was it also a phone or just? It was a phone, dude. Because it got was. See, that's buttons. that's why I don't even consider the Engage a failed console. It was a failed phone. <laughs> it was a phone for gamers, and it was shaped like a taco. It was shaped like the letter D, a capital letter D. And the idea was that it was a phone that you could hold in two hands so that you would have buttons on either side and a screen in the middle. Just very much like a, you know, like a Game Gear or a Lynx or, or any other handheld that we're used to. But in order to use it as a phone, you had to hold it up on its thin edge and <laughs> put the thin edge up to your home. So it looks like you're holding a capital D next to your face. like <laughs> Or a metal it, taco, a giant metal taco. A giant metal taco, yeah. And so the... Uh, the joke became side talking and uh, <laughs> in funny. the early uh, pre meme days of the internet the the instantly funny thing became to take a picture of something that was similarly awkward and talk into it and send it out on Twitter with the hashtag side talking so like a banana or an actual taco or a television remote or uh, you know your laptop something bizarre that should not be held up to your face and pretend like you were talking into a phone and side talking took over for like a week <laughs> i played it i think we had a review unit at wherever i the hell i was maybe that was the end of game pro to insert cartridges you had to take the battery out and then insert yes, you did. oh my god i'm look, <laughs> yes, looking at this i'm looking at oh, that is bad i'm looking at yes, the insides you had to of this the phone's battery and then slide in like a tiny little cartridge that you know you could potentially swallow and uh and then yeah. you would play like they were all excited because they got tony hawk they got like a version of tony hawk's pro skater you know it didn't look or feel like tony hawk at all <laughs> none of the games were good at all so it's definitely a failure only because It was really trying to market itself as a video game console, so it failed as a phone and it failed as a video game console. Yeah, I mean, they sold this in GameStop. Yeah, they did. I mean, so yeah, I guess guess that is fair. I still think of it, oh, of course, Nokia did it, so it must be a failed phone. But realistically, it was Nokia making a, a swinging for the fences. Like, this is the future. The problem is that cell phone games suck. What we need to do is make a cell phone with better games. And, oh, no. 
No, you don't. Sony tried to do that with what the Xperia that has a yep. little controller, which slightly better design, but I don't know any person who has one. There's actually more than one version of Engage. I'm looking at at least two different versions. They tried to. They're like, oh, we, we've gotten your feedback. We will do another one. And at that point, it was it was just a punchline. There was nothing. There was no coming back. There's one thing that honestly, what need what more need be said about it? But we might as well bring it up because someone will then comment to be like, hey, what about what about this? How about the Ouya? Your, Even I didn't buy an Ouya. The Ouya was the uh, the manifestation of the misguided hopes and dreams of the dawn of Kickstarter. That's also something you say in the Marines, isn't it? That's Ura. Ura. No. Ura. I thought they were saying Ouya. <laughs> didn't you have one of these? I, I still do. I, I mean, thought I, it was a paperweight. I don't know what I do with it. It looks good as a paperweight. Yeah, there, there's approximately crazy. one thing worth doing with the Ouya. For, for reference, if you're not familiar with the Ouya, the Ouya was a device that was created. It's like a little little tiny box. And and it was it's the intention of the Ouya was to create a platform specifically for indie games to be played on. This was before the Steam Link happened and made that completely moot. Because I love console gaming, and actually I do legitimately not like computer gaming at all. The computer is my workstation, and I need to separate these environments. That's just for my own psyche. So I, this was very a very appealing prospect to me. But the the Ouya was a Kickstarter project that had like no horsepower to speak of. Very limited the kinds of games. It could play well wasn't the is it their fault because there were two things that happened one steam possibly destroyed it and two wasn't it that people were supposed to develop for it i'm sure that there needed to be a little bit of tweaking but the idea was that it would take presently existing independent games and that they would it would be a home for them and it was and the one thing i'll say about it is that saturday morning rpg the ouya experience was great because the ouya controller has a touchpad on it so you could do things like scratch and sniff sticker power-ups which is a delightful novelty, but that is the only thing of note I can say about this box that became very quickly completely useless. Surprisingly enough, they're still really expensive if you try to find one online. Oh, maybe I can sell it. That would be great. I think <laughs> you could at least for sixty to one hundred and fifty dollars. Wow, there okay. are there are some up to three hundred. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Didn't it run on an Android OS? I think. Yeah. I think it would have to. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it, to me the Ouya always sort of looked like like those those old 80s movies like, "Hey, we're going to we're going to put on a concert and save the rec center." <laughs> Come on, guys, it'll be great. 
<laughs> and then, like, they do it and nobody shows up. And they realize that it's really hard to put on a production that is going to, you know, save the rec center. I always thought, and I never got one or looked into it that much because I didn't care at this point, but I always thought the allure <laughs> of the Ouya was that it was almost like a fully customizable, you know, it runs on an Android OS. You could do whatever you wanted to provided you program yeah. the right yes. thing. Yes, if you want to turn it into an emulation machine for not particularly powerful emulation, like, yeah. but any retro games, yeah, you absolutely could very easily. It would be very easy to do that to a Wii. So that's a failure. Yeah. We, we got any more for this list? <laughs> no, that... I mean, there's an endless amount of failed consoles. We, we could go on. But before we talk about this Sgt. Pepper Star Wars mashup album in full, let's give you another taste of it. This is a song from about the middle of the record called Dianoga. Uh, you know, the sewer snake that lives in the trash compactor. And it's to the tune of Lovely Rita. Quite a smell that you've discovered Diving from the hallway through a little trash chute Found the door, but magnets sealed it Got a gun, but shouldn't wield it Blaster fire will only ricochet here again Dianoga, sewer snake Flattered with how you like me Would you feel free to please release my knee? A goner. Then the thing let go of me and just disappeared Glad I'm not that creature's dinner Gonna be a whole lot thinner 3PO come in already, where could he be? Oh, Dianoga, sewer snake I don't know where you've gone to But if we're flattened, you'll be flattened too So, folks, Palette Swap Ninja, you guys have been around a while, and this project 
has been in the works for I believe five years. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, actually longer than that. Yeah, we we kind of redid the math and realized that uh, Jude and I uh, started Palette Swap Ninja stuff in 2007, and that followed us being in an 80s band together earlier than that. When was it? 2003? Yeah, I think 2003 sounds about right. And this was just a local Bay Area uh, 1980s cover band. So Jude played guitar, I sang, and I did some of the guitars when when needed, which wasn't terribly often honestly. And, you know, we were playing local clubs and casinos and weddings and, and having a lot of fun doing Take On Me and Come On Eileen and uh, the occasional Michael Jackson and Madonna medley, you know, things like that. Jude and I used to share uh, a car ride, let's say, uh, which is the nice way of me saying that I bummed a ride off of Jude every week. <laughs> uh, and Jude would take me home from rehearsal. And, you know, being both video game nerds, we would always just get into interesting discussions. I was working at GamePro at the time, and, you know, we were talking talk about old arcade stuff and we hit on the idea of bands that are in jokes that nobody gets uh and we said oh if, if we were going to do a video game cover band or or a video game parody band or something what would we call it and we brainstormed a bunch of names and palette swap ninja being the mortal Kombat reference of you know it's you're just swapping the color palette between <laughs> Scorpion and Sub-Zero. That was the one we were like, well, if you know what Palette Swap Ninja is, then you know that right away that's a gaming reference, even though it doesn't say video games. You know, we didn't want to be one of those video game bands like Game Tunes are us or something, you know, like something horrible like that. So that just made us laugh, but we didn't do anything with it until Jude left me stranded at the altar and moved to Boston. Uh, and uh, as life took him to Boston, we missed working together. I, I came to you with the idea because I was working at OXM at that point and Viva Pinata had come out and I had this idea for a song uh, about, you know, adults, adult gamers playing Viva Pinata and having a lot of fun, but feeling really guilty and not being able to tell their friends, you know, that uh, that they could play Viva Pinata. Uh, so we did the Pina Colada song. Now, now from Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, the, the Rupert uh, Holmes classic. That's right. The only song to be number one in both the 70s and the 80s. How about that? It was number yeah. one as the calendar changed. And so, yeah, from there on, we just sort of, we chipped away at little song ideas when we had them. And they were a rousing success to about seven people. So that was good. Yeah, And that sort of started us along the, the idea of like narrative songs, like songs that actually tell a little bit of a story. When we first started, we had the name, so we had the sort of in-joke video game geek parody band thing, so we just kind of went with the video game thing for about an album's worth of material. How drunk or high or whatever you guys do um, were you when you were like, you know what, let's do a parody of a Beatles album? Dan had a different idea first. Yeah, we were neither drunk nor stoned. We were hungry. We were actually going out to lunch. <laughs> So because we live on opposite sides of the world, uh, Jude is outside of Boston. I'm outside of San Francisco. It's a very uh, long The only lunch. time we get to see each other is, yeah, like PAX. If he comes out to Seattle, you know, for PAX Prime, we, we get to see each other. Or more often, I've, I've been able to go out to PAX East and, uh, and see him. We had done a bunch of little songs on, you know, specific topics and stuff. And we liked telling those stories. We've got a song about Halo. And the story is basically that this guy thinks he's totally awesome at Halo because he can beat the campaign. And then he goes on Xbox Live and gets destroyed. And that's <laughs> basically, you know, it's, it's not that uncommon a feeling. We've all been like, I am invincible. And then you find yourself, you know, completely destroyed by some 12-year-old. 
So we said, well, you know, we have fun telling the stories and people seem to react to the story songs the best. So let's tell a bigger story. Again, being classic arcade fans, we thought The King of Kong, the documentary about Billy Mitchell and Steve Wiebe and the competitive Donkey Kong players. We figured, okay, well, that's like kind of this epic story. Let's put that on top of Tommy by The Who, you know, like the original (laughs) rock opera. And I said, oh, oh, Jude, I've got it. Uh, You know, like the, the main leitmotif throughout that whole work is a song called See Me, Feel Me. And it's See Me, Feel Me, Touch Me, Heal Me. And I thought, See Me, Feel Me, Touch Me, Weeby. Ha! Perfect! Comedy gold! (laughs) After about a year, I literally had nothing better than that. Uh, (laughs) And it just went nowhere. So... Uh, my wife and I went out to Boston for PAX East, and uh, Jude was able to come to the show a day. And I said, yeah, we'll go out to lunch that day. And we're on our way to lunch. And I said, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I've been working for like a year trying to come up with better ideas, uh, and I just can't seem to get this to work. And it was my wife, uh, Kat, who said, you guys are doing this all wrong. You, you're, you're trying to take two things that people are only mildly interested in. Nobody's super <laughs> passionate about Tommy or the King of Kong. If you really want to connect with people, you got to find something that everybody loves, something that is just universal, you know, like a touchstone of our culture, like Star Wars and I don't know, Sergeant Pepper, something like that. And she didn't mean it literally. She didn't mean use those two things and put them together. Jude and I were like, that could work. <laughs> and so by the end of that meal, we had several things sketched out. We had the title. We had uh, Lucas in the desert and whining as the as the response. And I realized, you know, there were a couple of pillars that sort of held up both things. You've got being for the benefit of Mr. Kite is the really sort of scary circus vibe song on the Beatles, and that happens to land about where Luke goes into the most Eisley Cantina, and there's a scary circus vibe there, too, you know? And then when they're on the Falcon, they're going to Alderaan, Ben teaches Luke about the Force. That's kind of when George Harrison's sort of Indian mystical, within you, without you, spiritual song comes. I'm like, okay, well, that, you know, that kind of works. And then both of them end with a giant explosion. The Beatles have, you know, this this massive piano chord that ends the whole album and then fades out forever. It's kind of like uh, if you did Dark Side of the Rainbow, but like yeah, actually on purpose. All the words yeah, I used to Floyd. <laughs> I used to inflict that upon like everybody I knew. Be like, no, no, I can get it lined up a little bit better. <laughs> but it was funny when we first came up with this. It, the ideas were coming so fast and furious that we were like really kind of frantic to write them down. I think you know we had a Google document from way back, and we would each be adding stuff in. It's like I want to pl- replace the alarm clock with Vader's targeting sound. It's like okay, yeah. you do that i want to you know <laughs> i want to do this and so we all had this stuff and and we just kept adding it to this document and there's really some just you know crazy like startling documentation that dan and i put together that is is just it's just really weird when you read through it yeah some of the notes go way deeper than they ever should have but we were keying in on really little things because we knew You've got Star Wars fans, and again, we are both big Star Wars and Beatles fans. No way we could have done this if we didn't really love the source material on both sides. But we also knew that, like, you know, the Beatles, Beatles fans are very finicky, and and Star Wars fans are super finicky, too. And you get one line out of place, and somebody will correct you, you know, or somebody will say, you guys aren't real fans. You know, you get into the the no true Scotsman kind of thing. And so we knew, well, if we're going to do this, not only should we make ourselves happy by being as accurate as possible, but if we don't make this as accurate as possible and respect both of those sources, we are never going to hear the end of it. So it became a like, well, what more can we shove in there? What other extra reference can we put in that would make somebody smile if they were really into Star Wars or some little thing that we could do 
musically where people go, oh, they even remembered that part uh, on the Beatles side. So the planning was intense. The lyrics alone took at least a year, probably a little bit more. The work shows. Myself and Mark with the C, our station manager over at Nerdy FM, we're just sort of flabbergasted by how well this works in just head slapping. This is so obvious in its simplicity, and yet it's never happened before. And it's so, and you guys did it so masterfully. It's like it was a puzzle that was just waiting to be solved the whole time. We were terrified that somebody else would think that because <laughs> at first, you know, they don't really go together. But then we thought about it and we're like, okay, these do go together. If you make it work, we had to massage a couple of things, obviously, but there's enough of the structure that we're like, how come nobody has done this before? So then we had to do everything in absolute secret. Because <laughs> yeah, that was the, the thing that we were really afraid of is that word might get out. Like, you know, people are like, oh, what are you guys working on? No, it's a secret project. And we weren't trying to be douchey about that we were we were literally afraid that somebody was going to be like ah yeah that's a funny joke uh yeah i'm just going to get some karaoke tracks and uh i'll sing a sing a pepper wars thing here we go yeah meanwhile dan and i are trying to re-record everything because we had you know some ideas that well maybe we wanted to tweak some things and then eventually that became adding in some some of the john williams score but yeah we did we did not want to get scooped after we got like part way into this what would you say was the most difficult part of either the lyrics or the recording because there's so much going on here and I think the time you guys spent on it shows. Usually, and especially on this project, Dan was kind of like a well-oiled machine on the vocals and I remember him coming to me on at one point and saying, well, I think I've got it all mapped out but I'm running into some problems on track five which is Imperial Holes which was, uh, you know, Paul McCartney's fixing a hole and, you know, I was a little bit startled because, you know, he was he was going great guns on this and I was like, uh-oh, if he's, if he's painted himself into a corner here, you know, what am I going to do? And he, he said, would you take a whack at some of the lyrics? And just, you know, I, I'm not sure how to do this thing. You know, is it Tarkin that's singing? Is it Vader that's singing? But they only come in partway through the scene. Do we even want it to be the, the Death Star conference room scene? Should it be something else? Should it be about Han, Han Solo? So my idea on that was to tell it from the perspective of the other dudes that are sitting at the table that don't talk. They're just kind of there. They're kind of freaked out by the fact that, you know, there's choking going on and Vader and Tarkin and, you know, all these really evil guys in the room. And so there's all these guys that are just sitting around bored or, or doing nothing. Uh, so my idea was to try to take it from there. And, and Dan was like, OK, thanks for those lyrics. Uh, but what I really like is this idea and I'm going to I'm going to run with it. Yeah. Unfortunately, Jude had sketched out like the entire song as lyrics. And I'm like, that's cool. I'm going to use like two of your phrases, but I'm going to take this in a completely different direction. But that that really did save it because I was banging my head against that wall for a while. And I'm like, I just don't know how to tell this part of the story. And when Jude said, what if it's like the worst board meeting you've ever been in? And it's those guys that are there and you can see them on camera. We originally sort of envisioned maybe we would get the chance to make videos for this. And that was the one of the ones that we wanted to do because Jude and I would have been dressed up in Imperial officer outfits, just sort of looking at each other like, uh, yeah, I have a three o'clock uh, and I'm helping present. So, you know, that, that's sort of... Let's that, wrap this up. Yeah, if, uh, so if you guys don't need me, I'll leave you to the choking. I'm going to go down uh, and yeah, I've got another meeting with some guys. That was a clutch save by Jude for sure. 
The other song that I really didn't know how to approach was uh, Within You Without You, uh, because it's so unlike, it's not rock music, right? Like Jude and I have done, you know, a couple of 80s songs. We did a Beatles song before, you know, but we're dealing with the meat and potatoes of, of pop rock. It's guitar, it's bass, it's keyboards, it's organs, it's drums, you know? And here's this one with tampora and sitar. Dilruba, and you know, like all these, I could just make up words now, and you would assume they were Indian <laughs> instruments because nobody knows what they are. Sounds delicious. Um, yeah, <laughs> and curry, and uh, vindaloo, you know, mm. and sibulba. Yep. Yeah, and sibulba. Yeah, I mean, you know, like George Harrison was a master sibulba player. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we sort of, you know, we would work in parallel. So while I was working on track four, Jude would be mapping out track five, then he would pass off track five to me. He would move on to track six, that kind of stuff, and you know. We more or less worked in order, but uh, over time we sort of started picking our targets like, you know what, I'm in the mood to do this one this weekend, I'll do that, or I've got an opportunity, or I just read something that's going to let me know how to do the guitar tones on this or whatever. And so we found ourselves pretty late in the project. I would say this was, what, like February of this year, Jude. We had already been working on it. We knew we mm -hmm. had a deadline. We knew we wanted to get it out for the 40th anniversary of Star Wars at the end of May. and, the, and Because the we blew all of our previous deadlines. Yeah, we had we were this was going to be out for Force Awakens, guys. This was like no problem. This this project has perpetually been but in 4 months we'll be done. In 3 months this will be over. It just kept extending. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Jude, but neither Jude nor I really wanted to tackle that song ourselves. Oh yeah. Yeah. And there were there were some tough songs around it. I, I was spending a lot of more time on being from the spaceport of Moss Eisley, and then I was freaking out about trying to get a realistic sounding clarinet sound for uh, AA20 I had lofty goals for circling back around on this one, and it never really happened. Uh, Jude was in charge of all the orchestration. All of the all of the symphonic instruments were all you know almost all digital. Jude, being the synthesizer and organ guy, I'm like, okay, well that's your heavy lifting, and he also did all of the drums. So I get to sit back and go like, well, I got to sing everything, and I got to do all the guitar and the bass line. But I kind of had a lull in my schedule, and I'm like, so uh, do you want to take a crack at the force within you, Jude? Do you, uh, <laughs> did you get my email, Jude? Uh, and so I finally said, I'll give that a shot. And then, okay, yeah, that'd be good if you do that. Go ahead, try that. You know, oh, okay, you were listening. Okay. So uh, <laughs> so I, I took a shot at that, and uh, I wound up using an electric guitar with a lot of effects to create the main sound in there. Uh, huh. But, you know, I had a friend that helped pitch a uh, tempora sample so that it was in the right key of the song and just sort of made that one up as we went along. Uh, it was a lot of creative solutions on the fly. And like, I wonder if this would... Oh, good, that worked. Okay, let's keep that. For all the planning we did, some of the stuff that we did was very much inspired in the moment. And uh, that one was, I got to come up with something. We're running out of time. And Jude's got his hands full. And I should really try to solve this problem while I can. And that, that turned out to be one of my favorite tracks. We both did not like that song. And then it came together and we're like, yeah, this is great. We saved the middle of the album. You know? It's now one of my favorite songs on the album. And Dan really gets the kudos for taking a part where we didn't know what to do with with like the big solo, you know, the call and response solo between George Harrison and, and whoever else was playing, because we didn't think it was it wasn't funny. It's sort of like, okay, well, we could just play that that call and response solo, but what are we going to do? And then Dan came up with the idea of having the R2-D2 uh, sound effects in there, which totally saved that song from a comedic standpoint, I think. Yeah, I think I think people would have just endured that song. But we knew, you know, that if you're making a parody album, if there's 
one thing we've learned from Weird Al, it's that, <laughs> you know, the words have to be funny. And the closer the words are to the original, you know, at least in terms of cadence and stuff, the, the better that, that it seems to all come off. But we're like, well, we've got like a minute and a half of some obscure solo that's just going to be there for the sake of the solo. And there's no jokes. People are going to hate the song. There's no jokes. They want more jokes. Uh, and our, yeah, throwing in R2-D2 there really saved our bacon. Yeah, moody atmospheric tracks are not exactly a uh, cornerstone of comedy. Comedy. <laughs> See, I feel a little bad because unlike all of you, I'm not, I like music from the Beatles. I'm not a major Beatles fan, so I'm not that familiar with this song. So I feel like, should I listen to the entire Entire Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band <laughs> album first, and then listen to all of this. That would help. Yes, so I, I would actually say yes. You, yeah, I think listening to that record in general well, will, it, will it spoil it for me? <laughs> no, no, no. Because no, the I'll know kind of what that... it'll sound like now, and it's ruined. You'll get no, the jokes no. now. I'm sure. I think you'll appreciate our jokes? what we've tried to do more <laughs> if you know the more you know about sergeant pepper i think the, right, the we knew that most people that were in this audience were going to be more star, star wars fans than beatles fans it's just it's a generational thing right like we're talking about 50 year anniversary versus a 40 year anniversary more people have grown up with star wars as part of their fiber than people that you know grew up with beatles unless their parents were really into beatles so you won't so, be doing a justin bieber album to star wars is what you're saying breaking, well, breaking my heart guys here's the funny part when we had a friend rob smith we still have a friend rob smith but he went around <laughs> and we uh, do? yeah oh no rob's still our friend after okay, everything okay, we put good, him through. Good. rob was editor-in-chief of machinima.com for a while so he had a lot of contacts mm. with people that were doing online video content and he liked this idea he he was a very early booster and he said, you know, we got to get people to do videos for this. And he approached a major outlet that does a lot of geeky content and does major video content and said, you know, here's the pitch. Uh, my friends are doing this, but, you know, I've got your phone numbers. So this is a hit. You guys should be involved in this. And again, we were like, it's free, you know, whatever. It's free content. And they're like, but it's not relevant. Like, it's so not fresh. Could you do a Taylor Swift Star Wars album? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like if it was Katy Perry or Justin Bieber, we would understand, but nobody's going to watch this because it's not topical. And Fuck that was actually a pretty that. major blow. <laughs> I was I was really bummed. Wow. And Rob argued the opposite. He's like, "No, those are flash in the pan things. These things are eternal. Star Wars is never going away. The Beatles have left this amazing cultural impact you're dealing with things that are important that's what makes this thing special they're like but bieber is hot you know and i'm like <laughs> so that was part of the reason that we sort of like went back and you know we're still working on it at that point but we had demos of the tracks you know somebody could understand what we were doing we had about half the album done <laughs> i remember talking uh, to dan afterwards i was like so dan dan how did the pitch go and he was like well they liked the star wars part <laughs> They're kind of hoping we could change the Beatles part. Don't All worry. It's only three and a half years of work down the tubes at this point. <laughs> yeah, that was the, unfortunately, that was the takeaway. And, and and when I realized, I looked, I was like, well, then when is this going to be relevant? If we do it around Force Awakens? Or then if we do it around Rogue One? I realized, like, okay, we're not going to have it done in time for Rogue One. And I started looking at the calendar and I realized, oh, the 40th anniversary of Star Wars and the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper are a week apart. Then we got to get it out in May. May 2017, that's our launch window. If we can get it out for Star Wars Day, even better. But that's the answer. And that will make it culturally relevant to these people. And so we went back and pitched them again and they still said no. <laughs> 
Didn't you hear? We're looking for some Katy Perry tie-in. It was Katy Perry, not Paul McCartney. She's the mm. cute one now, you know. So, <laughs> well, he's, but that's okay. The older he gets, the cuter he gets. It's weird. The more he looks like Taylor Swift, really. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, it sounds like going for full independence was the best outcome. You, you got videos regardless for the entire presentation. Yeah, and the funny thing about those is those weren't really in the cards. The idea of, you know, syncing up our tracks to some custom edited Star Wars footage, that was, again, Kat's idea. And uh, that came in very late. Like within the final like two months, I think of the project, right, Dan? Yeah, uh, my wife is uh, is a woman of many talents, and video is one of them. She's a professional photographer, and she does a lot of really cool like mythical and fairy tale stuff. But she's a big, huge Star Wars nerd too, and so you know she's been the sounding board through all of this project. Before I bring lyrics to to Jude, I would bounce them off of Cat and say, "What do you think about this cadence? And what do you think about this joke? And I we got to get a blue milk joke in here." And she's like, "All right, well, you know, they would probably fit here and that kind of stuff." So so she was, you know, uh, surrounded by this. She and I do a podcast and we put that on hold because in two months, you know, we'll, we'll go back to our podcast because this will be done in two months. And that was literally two and a half years ago. <laughs> and she said, well, whether you get a video partner to do live action stuff or not, we should recut the film so that it tells the story of your songs because people are going to want to see that. And if we don't do it, it's kind of a weird thing to be complimented by a fan creating a video for one of your parody songs. And then they put the lyrics on the screen and they get the lyrics wrong. And so it's like, well, if we leave this up to the fans, we have no idea if somebody's going to approach it the way that we would approach it. And Kat had a strong idea for what she wanted to do. She goes, even if you get a live action video or videos, promote the hell out of them, but I'm going to make this as a backup. She knew that people don't just trade MP3s, right? You you send somebody a YouTube link and you it's funny if you see it. So that's how we figured most people would find the album. You can download it for free if you want to listen to it outside. Side, but first exposure is going to be YouTube. So Kat had an idea, and she just said to me, "Lay off just me." Yeah, she said, "Don't backseat edit me on this one." She's like, "I know what I want this to be. I have a vision for this. Get me the footage that I need, and I'll call you in when I need you." And I was like, "Okay." Uh, and she worked crazy, like for three or four weeks. She did an amazing job, and it turned out that that was our core video. We we never did get a video partner. We never were able to get dudes in stormtrooper armors or or Darth Vader singing in costume or anything like that that was the original hope is like oh that'll really sell this concept people really get it but it turned out that just watching the film in a 40 minute cut uh <laughs> it was even better because it again it was playing with stuff that people already knew so there was there was a, a joy of re-watching star wars in this new context that i didn't really count on but obviously that was the kind of thing that cat was like nope that's that's gonna work now that uh this long-standing project is finally over What's next? When's episode five? Oh, there's the question. Dude, we wondered if they would ask. Do we do we go to five now or do we go to three? I I don't know. Which way are we supposed to go? Uh, Phantom I Menace, we, I think. Yes, I think we should go back to Phantom Menace. There you could use uh, some Bieber. Yeah. It would great with young Anakin. Yeah. Just put garbage with garbage. That's <laughs> yeah, I guess if, if we did Phantom Menace, we would definitely have to go with a band that had a young male lead singer. So maybe we do it all with the Jackson 5. Yeah, I was thinking uh, Michael Jackson. Yeah. With the Osmonds. The Osmonds is probably a more appropriate thing. Maybe the Partridge family. You know? um, <laughs> there are so many people that have like made recommendations to us at this point. Oh, I'm sure. I'm I think sure. if we went with any combination, we would be stealing someone else's idea. Yeah. Yeah. 
I guess given how much time and effort this actually took, are, are you guys ever even going to consider doing this kind of undertaking again? Are you just like, we need a break for five to ten years and then maybe we'll have another <laughs> lunch in the middle of America or wherever we meet up and then consider Oh, it. we're we're that crazy, but it might, our crazy might go off in a different vector this time. I'm not sure. So I don't want to say never. You know, I love, this, I love Star Wars. I love the Beatles. Uh, I'm still inspired by both of those things. There's certainly plenty of material there to play with, but this really did kind of feel like a singularity in some ways. We were working towards this. We realized that these are the two cultural pillars. We are also, I'm kind of concerned about a bad sequel because, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, joking about the Phantom Menace, people were like, this is going to be the greatest thing in the world. And it just wasn't. Uh, and it's because people's expectations were there. So I wouldn't say never. Uh, I mean, Jude and I are going to continue making music together no matter what, but specifically another Star Wars Beatles album, there's a lot to live up to. I think, I mean, I'm super proud of what we were able to do here. It did take five years. Uh, I am looking forward to going back and playing a whole bunch of games that I didn't get to play. Uh, my wife is like, can we do our podcast again now, please? You know, uh, <laughs> things like that. So a, a little bit of a return to normalcy, but this was really like a bolt from the blue, you know, like we captured that moment from this idea and we were lucky enough that it, it was sustained and we ran with it. I would hate to go, come on, we got to do a song about Boba Fett and it's got to work to Abbey Road, you know? like. <laughs> now that you say that. You no, know, I, I felt like we had a lot of luck on this one. Uh, you know, just the way a lot of the stuff lined up. There, there was a lot of work in there and, and, and Dan did a great job with the lyrics. I, I do think it would be really hard to just kind of arbitrarily pick a Star Wars movie and get it to go together. I suppose it's possible, but... Uh, it's possible, yeah. but it's not appealing. and as it stands you guys have uh you know a great album of at this point very dated but regardless uh, you know well done video game and well-known song mashup so clearly there's all kinds of different avenues you could explore and i hope you do because this was the first i'd heard of palette swap ninja and you guys are great oh thank you thanks i'm not exactly proud of some of our earlier songs there's things that i wish we (laughs) do differently or undo we were still in beta we were still in beta that's why we called our album still in beta for instance we do a song about the Wii U and not being able to get it at Christmas time. The, you know, the shortage is over, and so is the production. So th- <laughs> that is the nice thing about this: is that Star Wars is eternal, Beatles are eternal. We we actually are playing in sacred waters, and we're gargling. Uh, but at the same time, it's not something that we have to explain. Well, no, if you understood, the Wii U was really hard to get for a, for a whole year. You know, it, like you know, it just doesn't. Like we've got a song about Viva Pinata, and now people are like, "What the hell is Viva Pinata?" You know, that is one of my favorite games. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that game. But yeah, so we'll we'll see what the future brings. I feel that whenever you guys do your tell-all biography, it should be called "Gargling in Sacred Waters." <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that to be the next album. Let's just call Gargling in Sacred Waters. That is a good title. (laughs) I'm going to write that. I'm going to start a Google Doc right now. All right, let's get on that. We have no idea what it will be. <laughs> well, well, we'll interview you guys again in five years when you're done well, with that project. Oh, I'm sure we can get this one done in three. I mean, now that we've <laughs> yeah, got maybe some practice, if we cut a few corners, maybe two and a half. <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll just reuse some of the drums that we've already got from the Beatles project. It's fine; nobody will notice. <laughs> Save as. <laughs> That's what we should call the next album, man. Save, Save as. as. That is great. <laughs> Give me my first child's name. Well, where can people find you guys? We're everywhere and nowhere. We are the darkness that flaps in the night. We're at paletswapninja.com. If that's too hard to spell, that's okay. You can go to bit.ly slash psninja 
all lowercase. That'll take you to our website. Uh, and if you'd like to go just to the YouTube playlist and watch the whole album that way, that's bit.ly slash Star Wars Beatles all lowercase. And we're on Twitter as PSWAP Ninja. We're basically Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. at PSWAP Ninja, just because uh, Palette Swap Ninja was like one character too long, and I did not want to be twitter.com slash Palette Swap Ninja. I'm a little afraid if I turn my safe search off Google and search for PSWAP Ninja. <laughs> yes, PSWAP Ninja. Pop up, but... Hey there. You'll never see us coming. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, we will link to all the appropriate sources for Palette Swap Ninja on this episode's page, along with everything we've talked about in this episode. And places where you can support Nerdy Show, because if you like this interview, if you like this discussion, we are entirely listener-supported, and we rely on you. You are our only hope. So go to nerdyshow.com slash support. You'll find links to our Patreon, where you can get a slew of outtakes and, uh, and exclusive content, as well as early releases for being a backer, including some content from this episode, as a matter of fact. And if you shop through our Amazon links... Everything will go back to Nerdy Show and help us fund this and other shows on the network. And you should also rate and review us on iTunes. That's free to do. Or tell a friend. That's also free, maybe. That's how I heard about you. <laughs> a friend told maybe me two. about Nerdy Show. It's true. You got one. Yes. Two. Oh, I said I didn't want to speak for Jude. So yeah, you got two. I'm retiring, Cap. We got oh. two. We got two people. You don't need me. Anymore. You're right. We're getting paid an exposure. That's right. Isn't that the yeah. <laughs> fifty cents? I just made fifty cents of exposure dollars. Putting it in an IRA. See you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, taking us out, we're gonna play another track from Palette Swap Ninja. But this one, this one's not from Princess Leia Stolen Death Star Plans. This is a non-album single. It's a parody of Peter Schilling's Major Tom Coming Home. It's Major ripoff, trade ends blow, which is something I think we can all agree on. Standing there alone, the cashier's waiting. I trade in my game at the store. My game is nice and mint. But their computer says it's worth much less than I paid before. The Markdown Stars. They hand me my cash, but I am certain that I got the shaft. Lower value, browsing all the shelves to find a new game that I'll sell right back to this same store. My ass is sore. Multiplayer isn't all that fun. Empty lobby, should I trade it in? I get so little, and the bargain bin will only grow. I just don't know. Back at the cashier, there is a problem. Inventory's full. They're not buying too many in stock from other trade-ins, turning me away. He says goodbye. I know why
Swap Meet, trade your old games here. You'll get much more. I bring several games, and so do others. We swap one for one with a smile. We all understand the games have value. There's no middleman. It's our software. Our trades are fair. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.